0: instead of non speculative like oh i'm so inhibited am i knowing we can we can know, <laughs> that is such we can know <laughs> that's such a
1: good description of that's so good that's the
2: comfy so, paradigm uh, just, oh, i can so you know oh. i'm just so finite oh my god <laughs> <laughs>
1: philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi. And Owen. Hey. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, James Callahan. Hey, James, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. James, uh, sometimes known by Crane or James Crane on Twitter, some of our listeners might be more familiar like that, Uh, is a teacher and a PhD candidate at Emory University currently working on a dissertation about Schelling and his academic research is in German idealism more broadly. His long-term interests include the history and future of Marxist critical theory and teaching comparative or world history of philosophy. Uh, and he's also quite familiar with the work of the person we're discussing today. Today we're talking a bit about the work of Gillian Rose. Rose was a British philosopher who held the chair of social and political thought at the University of Warwick until her death in 1995. She became most well-known, I think, for her formidable critique of post-structuralist thinkers like Heidegger, Foucault, Deleuze, and Derrida in her book Dialectic of Nihilism. There she argued that those philosophers tended to reinstate, unavoidably, precisely the kind of law that their deconstructive and invasive maneuvers were supposedly meant to elude only now in a disguised form that worst yet masks its own political character. The text that we're looking at though is Hegel Contra Sociology, her second book from 1981. In it, as in much of Rose's work, she's attempting to defend Hegel against what she sees as his misreadings, which notably includes the reading of Hegel found often in Marx for all that I think it does make sense to call Rose a kind of Marxist. Rose is interested in saving the speculative Hegel against the efforts to drag down his thought to the level of ordinary propositional understanding. On Rose's account, this matters for a few reasons. First of all, she argues that it just gets Hegel wrong. Hegel's speculative propositions don't have the form of normal ones where a variable predicate is attached to a stable given subject. Rather, they identify a subject that is empty until it is qualified by a predicate that becomes necessary for it in a relationship of reciprocal mediation, identity and difference. If you don't understand that, Rose thinks, you'll never grasp what Hegel is talking about when he writes, for instance, in The Philosophy of Religion, that, quote, religion and the foundation of the state is one and the same thing. They are identical in and for themselves, end quote. And hopefully we'll get to a bit of what that means in particular. It's a very important claim for Rose's reading. But if it were just a matter of getting Hegel right, I think that wouldn't be very interesting. More interesting and more motivating for Rose's overall project, this speculative mode of thought has contemporary historical and political significance. Hegel was attempting to overcome the deadlocks of Kantian thought, which she thinks were elevated to really stupefying levels by Fichte. In this, she's close to Lukács, who we did an episode on not too long ago. Like Rose, Lukács thought that the paradoxes or antinomies of bourgeois thought are best represented by Fichte's subjective idealism. Rose's addition in this text is that the two major trends in early 20th century sociology recapitulated the structure of this paradox. And the reason why, she argues, is that they represented two sides of neo-Kantian thought in the early 20th century. And consequently, they remain trapped in the Kantian paradigm one way or another. And the limits of Kantian thought are precisely knowledge of things as they actually are. That's what we can't know in Kantian thought. And that turns out to be devastating for any sociological program. In other words, can we actually do sociological analysis? Can we learn anything about society if we're committed to the notion that we can't know anything other than how things appear to us? Or, if we go the other neo Kantian route following Fichte, can we say that we know things in a more profound way, but only because we make them what they are, because we constitute them as such simply by cognizing them? Again, this seems like it can't be where we wanted to land if we're seriously trying to do sociology. Rose contends that these two trends in sociological analysis can be traced back to the two primary schools of neo Kantian thought in the late 19th and early 20th century. That is the Marburg school and the Heidelberg school. In this way, she argues both major trends of contemporary sociology for all their seeming and outspoken opposition to one another remain trapped in the same transcendental paradigm. And this is why she thinks a return to Hegel is valuable. But the Hegel she wants to retrieve and defend doesn't much look like a lot of his caricatures. Her Hegel is no conservative, but she thinks it makes sense that he's been misunderstood in this way. Her Hegel is a true radical who sees history as an open-ended process in which philosophy has a role to play in overcoming the modern split between theory and practice, which has its source ultimately in the forms of contemporary capitalism. If she sees in Hegel the resources to overcome this sort of neo-Kantian deadlock, let's just say it's not going to be easy. It requires biting the bullet on some of the most contentious of Hegel's claims about our thinking the absolute, for instance, without which, Rose says, Hegel's thought has no social meaning. And thinking the absolute requires thinking in a different, decidedly non-Kantian way, thinking in positive dialectical forms, not restricted, by the self-imposed limits of the finite Kantian critique, thinking in terms of open-ended totality, in short, thinking speculatively. Without this, Rose thinks, for all of our sociological sophistication, we'll just endlessly shout into the void of the neo-Kantian echo chamber, while society continues to crumble under the weight of the undialectical contradictions of capital. So I think that should do as a short introduction to this highly sophisticated and original thinker, Um, I'd like to kick things off by asking Ukraine whether what I've just said sounds right. And if I haven't botched it too badly, maybe you could tell us a bit about how you came to Rose, what you think she's up to, and how her work fits in with your other research.
3: Oh, I think that was excellent. And uh, especially because posing the problem of sociology like that for Rose. And she's taken – I mean, the book is called Hegel Contra Sociology – Seems to imply something like an incompatibility, but uh, she was herself, you know, a lecturer in sociology, and her work has had an impact uh, to an extent in sociological research. So she's not against it per se, but that kind of transcendental form, which she calls like the problem of the transcendental circle, which is that you start with the conditioned, which you just assume is sort of given as a fact. You move up to its condition in the transcendental subject that allows for it to appear as part of our experience at all. And then where did the condition itself come from? So then you're just thrown back instead of, and this is part of the viciousness of the Kantian move, where do the categories come from? Uh, This is something that there are plenty of jokes about when you read through the first critique, for example, there's the section on the deduction where Kant is supposed to generate the categories of judgment for you out of the transcendental unity of apperception, the spontaneity of the transcendental subject then how you relate those categories to the world is also a mystery in the same way that the emergence <laughs> from the transcendental s- subject is a mystery. It just does it spontaneously. And these categories relate to the world or sort of shape or structure what, we, what is immediately given to us in intuition. That just sort of happens through imagination, which is a wonderful, mysterious force. And we should be grateful for what it does. <laughs> so this is the problem, though, with Kant. When sociologists take up Kant, and this is why it's interesting when she'll call people neo-Kantian, she does not mean that they're faithful to Kant, which is part of the difficulty coming to terms with her concept. They're not necessarily faithful to Kant because they say, okay, so we are a certain kind of subject. That means the world is going to appear to us in a certain way. What appears to us is structured by certain a priori categories. They say, ah, but what if those a priori categories are just historical? So there's something that emerged in history, this historical a priori where they would be, you know, for certain. And I mean, you can even see Foucault picking up on this with like the episteme, which is that there are like sort of historical periods in which people are subjects in a very specific way. So the world appears to them in a way that is unique to the historical period that they live in. Mm. We get another version of the same problem with the transcendental circle. The first one was you started with the conditioned. You moved up to its condition of appearance, and then you sort of stopped. And then the circle comes in where you have to go back to immediate experience. With these other, the sociologists especially, she'll call them metacritical. And the metacritical approach, I think she associates especially Habermas with this position, is you start with the conditioned, you go to the conditions, the transcendental ones, and then you say, ah, but these in the structure of the subject, they themselves have preconditions that are historical. And where do you keep going? You also stop and then have to go back to the other two levels. So this is the viciousness that she sees operative in sociology, it's something that she thinks she finds in a lot of Marxism as well, which is the neo-Kantian Marxism section. And this seems to be her central problem. So yeah, sorry, that was a little bit long. No, 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 it's great. Uh, But that is, as far as I can tell, her position on the limits or the drawbacks of sociology, as it appears both, you know, in like Weber and Durkheim, all the way up to what she takes to be sort of the neo-Kantian Marxisms of, and she lists off, uh, Zimmel, Lukacs, Adorno, and then Althusser.
0: Okay, I have a staging question. So this is all very helpful. Thank you. I'm wondering if we can say, say it like nicely without using too much philosophical jargon. What is the problem of sociology? Because in listening to the both of you, like I believe there is a problem here in the way sociology is practiced. and And I actually really appreciate what Gill said at the beginning which is there's a problem with Kantian thought where like what we can know is what appears to us so can we ever really know the world and like if sociology can't know the world well that's a bummer for that discipline <laughs> and actually it's and actually like bummer. this does seem to be a problem for sociology on on the whole because as far as I'm aware the kind of postmodern turn in sociology means that like people actually are really skeptical that they can know the world like most sociology is just entirely descriptive just mm-hmm. like, I don't know, using the word heuristic too much and like interpreting <laughs> things. You can see how I feel about that. But like, to me, the problem is like imminent. Can we know something? But there's also like a difference. There's a difference in a connection between like sociology and epistemology. So, like, why is this not a problem for like realist epistemology? Why is this a problem mm-hmm. for like sociology like why are why is it like cuz it what we're talking about like when you put it in that kantian way and when she keeps using the phrase neo kantianism over and over again i think of an epistemological problem and then you are talking to me about the classics of modern sociology so i'll just say like you know to like signpost for people weber durkheim parson's marx these are people who like think probably marx more than the others, actually. But, like, these are people who think they are finding things out. They're not, like, they're actually doing the thing. They're not just saying they're going to do the thing and wondering <laughs> what they could do. Um, and now that I'm saying that, I'm actually not sure Weber, Durkheim, or, or Parsons, that's actually true about them. I think that might only be true about Marx. But but do you see what I'm saying? Like, what is the problem of sociology, and what makes this, like, something interesting for, like, social scientists or People who wanna like actually find things out empirically, as opposed to just like an epistemological problem that mm-hmm. like I think needs to be motivated less for philosophers, because we like that already. Or we like that kind of problem that already motivates us.
3: No, yeah, excellent, excellent question. And I think it puts pressure exactly where, you know, the question of like bigger stakes comes in. As you mentioned, Gil, which is like, if this is just about getting Hegel wrong. <laughs> You know, it's a very who, difficult book. Who cares? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> There's lots of books about getting Hegel right. You know.
3: <laughs> yeah, this is the this is the one. Uh, what is it? Uh, the famous saying that I think even Kant uses to justify the length of the first critique, which is uh, some books wouldn't be so long if they weren't if they were so, so short. short
1: yeah. <laughs> this is one of those
3: short books that is crazy long. Yes. Um. So yeah. So why are we why are we doing this? And I guess I would say for, let's say, social sciences and like the relationship between philosophy and the social sciences, I guess we could break it down into, let's say, three points. The first one would be something like, and this gets to the split in the beginning of the first chapter between validity and value. So validity is going to be under what set of conditions can we make a valid claim about society itself? Or also, and this will be something, for example, taken up again by, I think, Foucault, in his sort of Kantian approach, which is what appears as sort of like a valid claim at what point in history? What are the conditions mm-hmm. of validity? Mm-hmm. So the problem is these are conditions of possibility. They never get at actuality. This is always about what are the, what's the possible range of statements that we can make, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So we're reasoning back from claims that are made at a certain point in history back to, ah, well, this is the shape of meaning for this, the historical a priori for this period. So, like many Kantians, or what many Kantians will do, because Kant himself did it, and this is a criticism the idealists have of him, he tried to sneak actuality back in through practical reason. So, with theoretical reason, you're just doing that search backwards for the conditions of whatever shows up and appears for you. Practice, you're supposed to, let's say, by merit of the exercise of practical reason, which is like a regulated form of desire for Kant that produces whatever you have like a representation of in your head He's like, there we, we shape reality. There you go. There's your actuality. That's what you wanted, right? This whole time <laughs> in sociology, this shows up as value. So if you have validity is the, the first problem, this is value. And this is like, okay, so how do we explain these different, you know, historical a uh, priori? Like, let's say it is meaningful to, you know, call someone a witch uh, a few hundred years, you know, that'll that'll land you in court. Not the same thing today. So you can say, in this case, why did that change? And the sociological response, or one of them, and this is, I think, what she finds to be a problem, is like, well, our values changed. Mm -hmm. Our values, the sort of the, the reasons that we give to justify what we do practically, that structure of justification, that has changed. So we just care about different things. We're committed to different things. We want different things. So then why? And then you get a vicious circle between validity, how do we know what's true about society, and values, which is what does is, like, society care about? And it's not super clear how that is resolved. That's what she traces through like all of the history of Neo-Kantian sociology, as she calls it. On the question of empirical data, Lillian, and I like this because it's like, Sociologists actually like do things. You know, they're not just writing preparations for a future science. Uh, as someone who studies Schelling, he never finished an actual work in his life. He just wrote introductions to the <laughs> outline to the first steps of the next system the that will come in the future. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he's goaded. The goaded officially yeah. goaded. Yeah.
3: yeah, just like propaedutics to propaedutics the entire time.
1: We fuck with a propaedutic. <laughs> yeah,
3: and so like. Yeah. Sociologists do something like they collect data. So it's like, yeah, but what do they do with it? This is the problem with sociology that even like Adorno and Horkheimer pointed out in their criticisms, which is you got this massive data on one side and then you just have like a bunch of generalizations or frameworks that you put it in. And they're like, there's no clear relationship between like the empirical content and the theoretical form. And they say that part of that and Rose is going to pick up on this line from critical theory because she understands herself as like a successor to the, or a part of the Frankfurt school. She's going to understand this in the way where Adorno and Horkheimer are going to be like, well, if you don't have to consider where you as a sociologist stand in society, you don't have to think about where your theories come from. You don't have to think about why you're collecting data in this way. You don't have to think about why sociology is necessary in the first place. It's a lot easier to think that you just have, more or less useful forms or frameworks that you just shove a bunch of data into. So that seems to be the problem, the three problems. Problem mm-hmm. of validity, how do we know what's true about society? How does society understand itself? Why does that change in history? This brings us to the problem of value. Well, because their values change, which raises you know the question why. So then we get the last part on empirical data, which is we have all of this. What do we do with it? We just got these models over here, and then we're just sort of accepting, let's say, whatever appears to us as given, sort of like in sociobiology, where if you start with the data and like you're not super reflective about where your theory is coming from, you'll do like E.O. Wilson did, and he'll be like, or like happens in Evo Psych, which is like, I gave a survey out to a room full of college students, and I asked them how they would feel if they walked in on their G.F. cheating on them. On this basis, I'm going to make an inference about sexual psychology that has obtained in the human species since the time <laughs> that we stood up and were bipedal. <laughs> that's the problem that she has.
2: Yeah. I, that's, that's really helpful. I think, so I don't know the discipline of sociology very well, but I do think that I can see you give the example of Foucault, but I think it also applies to Adorno. What the problem is, is that, you know, she refers often to, you know, conceptions of change and the inability of thinkers like Adorno to make sense of social transformation, to make sense of change. Um, and I think that for her that's symptomatic of like pushing out this part of Hegel, like pushing out the conception of the absolute in Hegel, right? And, and kind of neo-Kantianizing uh, him. Like with Foucault, all, you mentioned those kind of epistemes, right? Those different periods where, with the historical a prioris. Foucault never he doesn't have any account of what the motor of change is for, like, why we go from one historical a priori, one episteme to another, right? And she gets, she thinks again, that's symptomatic of forsaking this element of Hegel, knowledge of the absolute, which is interested in the nature of the preconditions, the nature of conditioning, not just in looking at the world that is conditioned, right? Looking at the world as it, as we encounter it at a moment in history or our experience, but actually doing this, you know. For Boten for Kant, like thing of trying to give a genetic account of the the conditions of experience, the conditions of a certain historical moment, the motor the actual causal motor of history, and I guess I, but one thing there 's not i don 't so i hope that 's like uh, at least fairly right to what she 's trying to do there, but one thing that i don 't i guess fully understand for for Rose is like what that then what a sociological science of the absolute looks like then like what a, you know what i mean like what 's <laughs> Because it's not just Marxian political economy, although at moments I kind of thought maybe that's where we were going here that like okay, the mm. sci- like the, the true study of the absolute then of the actual condition of the, the actual conditioning of history is some, in something like Marxian political economy because she's always talking about an understanding of society as a whole um, and in general, but I don't know, I guess yeah, so what what could you just say a little bit about what that recovery of the Hegelian absolute, which isn't content just to do kind of transcendental circles or hermeneutic circles you know what i mean like what does that look like in the social not necessarily in sociology but what does it look like in social theory
3: yeah and i appreciate the question on because you know the book opens with saying that this is supposed to be a speculative exposition of hegel that is recovering him like for social theory yeah yeah like that's the first sentence of the book so it's like okay so where does the social theory come in this is one of those where you know you got to make a few inferences. Yeah,
2: yeah. I just say real quick, it's it's amazing all these different moments where you know she'll spend ten pages getting into the kind of nitty gritty of neo Kantian discourse or of talking about German idealism, and then she's defending the Hegelian position and the emphasis on the absolute and the speculative um, mode of thought, and then we'll just say in the next sentence. And yeah, and without this, like we can't have an account of society or social change. Or, you know what I mean? Like and you're like, wait, we weren't talking about society at all. We were we <coughs> were talking about the transcendental ego and
3: uh yeah. No, yeah, no, that's a great I mean, this is yeah, this is another one of those uh this book would not be so long if it wasn't so short moments, because this is the kind of work that she definitely is asking her readers to do, whether or not that's mm-hmm. fair, you know. And I think I'm that not she, necessarily
2: against it. Like, I actually I appreciate the move, it's really thought-provoking. I'm just It's also difficult to wrap my head around.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's trying to piss people off. And she succeeded with this book. And with, like, dialectic of nihilism, as as Gil was saying earlier. Uh, So she definitely succeeded in that. What does it do for sociology? So there's been a little bit of uptake of her work in sociology. And that has to do with sort of the role of the researcher in sociological research, which is something that has happened in sociology since Rose's time. To be Mm -hmm. like, this is, this is a problem that has been animated by classical concerns in sociology for a while. So to a certain extent, that means understanding what the researcher is bringing to the process of research. So this isn't just like, I have to list, you know, like my biases or something like that, but that's like your actual involvement in the process of Mm -hmm. constructing social data. So that I take it is what she thinks this will do for sociology. For Marxism, if that's, you know, the other side of like social theory that she's talking about, because she seems to only think like those are the only two real candidates as far as she's concerned for like effective social theory in this book. For Marxism specifically, and this is her problem, the same stuff about like historical a priori's. You could just say like instead of the different versions of a historical a priori, you get in, uh, let's say like Weber or someone, you get in Foucault. Where in those cases, let's say it would be something like, it would have to do with values or commitments. What did people want at this stage in history? You could also get a little in here and talk about different like, epochs of morality or something like that. And those would be the historical a prioris. Instead of doing something like that, you could also do what sometimes Marxists do, which is that's where the mode of production goes. Mm-hmm. And in every mode of production, different historical shape of meaning, conditions and conditioned... And Hmm. they have all the same problems of both the transcendental circle and the metacritical circle. Hmm. You get to a point where, and this is her problem, especially in chapter seven, where she's like, okay, how do you get from base to superstructure? Because a lot of what she's targeting is sort of that classical theory. And she's looking for that middle. She's looking for the middle between those. She's like, how do you move from one to the other? If like, social being, for example, as Mark says in the 59 preface to the contribution, if social being determines men's consciousness and not the reverse, she's like, okay, so then two questions. First question, how does it determine it? Second question, how do we know about it then at all if it's just beyond consciousness in that sense? Mm. Um, and that's what she's going to ask and I think this is especially her criticism of Althusser, for example, which is that she says there is no mediation between sort of yeah. in his picture of overdetermination, what's going on at the level of the base or infrastructure, and what's going on at the level of superstructure or culture. She's like, how the hell do we get from one of those to the other? And she does not see a clear answer in the Marxism of her day by 1981.
2: Okay, this makes a lot of sense to me, because this is true of a lot of different, and you brought up the... Uh, lillian like post the post modernization of social theory, I can see how this is a problem for so many different frameworks, like if you say that i don 't know the criminal justice system in the United States is a product of white supremacy, that strikes me as as totally plausible, probably true, and historically there's plenty of evidence that links you know, links the emergence of mass incarceration to racism but like Pinpointing that link, that moment of relation, like the link between white supremacy and the the condition, and the actual conditions as they exist historically and socially, that relation, that precise determination, like where, like same thing with patriarchy and like the actual concrete existence of like sexism, of inequality, of heteronormativity, the violence of heteronormativity, and all of that, right, like. I, yeah, I I don't I don't have like an answer to that, but I just I, I do think that that is a problem that is under theorized. What is the actual nature of that determination? The relation between the condition and the condition, the thing that does the conditioning, and the actual conditions on the ground, so to speak. What is that causal relationship? And that's what I think the speculative. That's why I think the speculative appeals to her so much. Like whatever she means by the speculative and about. The Hegelian emphasis on the absolute—it is about being able to not just use that kind of discursive understanding that likes to parse things into categories and to separate them and and I guess then reconnect them in different ways, but to have a, an understanding of the social totality that includes the the account of the relation between.
1: I don't know, am I making sense? Totally, yeah. it's a and difficult like, thing yes, to think it's through. It's really but, hard yeah. to think. I would just as like another example, like the sort of relative lack of theoretical comprehension of that kind of relation or mediation is what allows like conservatives and reactionaries to refuse the terms of the discussion when you want to say something like there's a systemic yeah, white supremacy point. or like systemic patriarchy, right? Because then you can point, you know, what usually happens in moments like this. I just was watching a, a debate uh, about this between someone who was talking about Yeah, white supremacy in particular, and they were like, "Where's the system?" You keep calling it systemic, though. You keep saying it's a system. Where's the Mm -hmm. system? And then what you can, and then what you know, the progressive does in this moment of the debate is like point to one thing, like, well, for instance, redlining. Right. Or, or oh, like, mm-hmm. oh, for instance, like not being like allowed as a part of the GI bill. And they're like, OK, but those are singular instances. That's not a system either. Right. They're always going to be able to, like, refuse that systemic claim because the things that you point to as a sociological phenomenon are still particular givens. Right. And not like yeah. conditioning systemic structures or something like this. Yeah. That's I even find myself actually really kind of
2: copping out when I try to explain this in class when I teach, for example, like an easy way out of the problem sometimes for me seems to be like just saying, okay, like everyone can surely admit that the United States was racist like through Jim Crow, right? Like you couldn't possibly think it wasn't racist then. So like, what do you think happened in 1964? Like when the civil rights (laughs) act was passed that, that dissolved all the racism out of the country or something, right? Like, but that is, that also doesn't, that's like an admission that I can't, I can't really explain to you, clearly how it's still efficiently operative. You know what I mean? Like how racism plays that conditioning role on social phenomena.
0: Okay. So I'm just going to reformulate my earlier question, which is why is this a problem? Why is it called the problem of sociology and not a problem of like realist epistemology? So like if you, if the problem here is that you're having trouble pointing out causal mechanisms Like the first issue seems to be that you have to actually believe such causal mechanisms exist. And the problem with much of our modern discourse is that we have been refusing the existence of causal mechanisms for about 50 years now. And therefore, one is spinning one's wheels when one tries to identify them. So what you mean by systemic is actually just pervasive. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the most part, like just given the kind of general... Psychopathological and like psychodynamic way people think about systems. You you're usually actually just talking about a psychological mechanism at the end of the day. At least that's how I interpret a lot of the discussions about white supremacy. Unless there's some like more fleshed out social theory, which I I usually don't find to be forthcoming. Unless it's explicit, like when you kind of dig beneath there, what you are usually talking about is a system is like a mental system. Hmm. So why is this question not just responded to with like, okay, but causal mechanisms are real and like maybe they have emergent properties. Like what's the big mystery? Like why am I saying something too simple?
1: I want to hear what James says. We've all been kind of talking a lot and I want to let him jump in, but I, I think I have a sense for a little bit of what's specific about sociology here though and why maybe like it makes sense to look precisely to Hegel, because the question is something like the sociological researcher is part of the society that they're attempting also to study, right? And this is why we get these kinds of... Like, Foucault is the clearest for me, because again, I'm not as well-versed in Weber, Durkheim, etc., and I know Foucault better, but like, you get these like weird kinds of meta-claims where like, Foucault is talking about this historical transcendental structure of like meaning-producing statements and like what it's what is necessary for it to be possible for people to you know say x y or z at a given moment historically and it's like that's cool foucault uh, where are you are you in a society as well like are you also governed by these same sorts of strictures are you outside it that doesn't seem possible are you within it then how do you know what you're talking about and i think that there's something like that same kind of like reflective self-reflective inclusion within the thing attempting to be understood or described in mm-hmm. sociology where rose thinks that hegel's sort of speculative way of thinking like is exactly the way to parse this right where like it's not going to be satis- you're not going to be able to give a satisfying account of the theory that describes what a society is when you're a member of society if you're caught in this purely epistemological transcendental sort of circle mode mm-hmm. does that sound right
3: yeah i would say and i think that this is great because Lillian, in response to your question, I would say I think the problem is epistemology, which is that the epistemological position when we step into, for example, you know, the question of how do we come to know what we know, that kind of thing. Um, And especially when this is taken in what she thinks is like an ahistorical sense. And she thinks this is the problem with like this is in that sense this is the problem of validity. This is the problem of the transcendental circle. She says this shows up everywhere in sociology so the problem if anything is that sociology is too epistemological it asks the Mm -hmm. question of how we know what we know but the answer that it gives especially when it comes to the how this problem of like which conditions what are the conditions and this gets back to Owen what you were saying about active conditioning which is i think what she's interested in and what hegel is interested in so if there's a problem in sociology you know you could say there's like two Fundamentally, and this sort of mirrors the split between like validity and value from earlier. The first one is that there's at the level of validity or truth claims, there's sort of a pretense to a descriptive or like this neutral objective explanation, this view from nowhere. So you get this view from nowhere, or you get and this is something Adorno also talks about in a short essay called Society, which helped me make a lot more sense of this text, uh, even though she does not reference Adorno on this point. But the first one is pretense to pure description, pure objective description from like Mm -hmm. God's eye view. The other one is the assumption, as you said, which is like this skepticism that we can never really know the world. And it's in that sense, we're just like putting judgments on it. We are confining ourselves to sort of like psychological explanations of systems. And that doesn't work either. So mm-hmm. either just like this pretense to like, yeah, we can just immediately just describe how society is. I don't have to really account for my position in it or, you know, my theoretical framework. Foucault, where do you stand? And then he's like, ah, but haven't we always been in the present? Even when we're doing history, this is my own personal self-exploration in the, in, the introduction to his uh, second volume of the sexuality series. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's that pretense. And then the second one mm-hmm. is to say, well, instead of pretending that we're just going immediately to the objective structure, let's just talk about, you know, psychology, beliefs, individual stories and stuff like that and try to see if we can, like, work our way up to the social totality. And neither I mean, one right, of those if... works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, as, yeah, far as, that's I, awesome. as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, like, where this criticism really, like, landed for me, I, I think Althusser and Foucault were, were the most compelling examples on the one side. And then I thought Weber and Durkheim were also really good examples. And I don't know if Marx was a good example because I actually just didn't understand what she said about Marx. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just say that's, but yeah, I, 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 I see the, I see the problem.
1: These are like the two sides of subjective idealism, right? Which is also why it's interesting to, look to the conceptual resources developed in the wake of Kant, right? The two sides of subjective idealism on the one hand, like, yeah, like a fetishism for the given, the positive, like theoretical knowledge of what is what appears to us as such. No further questions asked, right? You could just do some descriptive work, pile up the data, see what it says. No account uh, of mediation. No account of mediation. And on the other hand, just like radical, un- Conquerable, skeptical doubt, right? If I can't say anything about what things really are in themselves other than how they appear to me and I can't even actually talk about what the thing in itself, like, what is that? Is that a thing? That's a mistake. That seems like it can't work. Can't causally relate to the way things appear to me. That's a category of the understanding that I'm imposing. All right, well then I guess I don't know shit. I don't know anything. Um, (laughs) and it's not, it's not kind of clear that Kant at all gives us the resources to get past that, which is why like, you know, Hegel, I, I like the way that Rose presents Hegel as someone who thinks that like Kant has to be fucking defeated. Like it's not, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes he's presented as like, you know, completing the Kantian system or like following in Kant's footsteps. And like she thinks that Hegel sees Kant as the abyss, you know, like that that it's the it's the end of things.
2: I mean, to be fair to her, it's because she keeps, and I think kind of rightly, like i was I found this really compelling that she keeps finding. The Kantian problem everywhere. Everywhere. But she she finds it in, obviously in the Neo-Kantians, but she finds it in like all the different traditions of sociology. The competing parts of Marxism are all still trapped within the postmodernists. The, same, the postmodernists, they're all within this relation, this circular relationship, right, between c- the conditioned and that which conditions it.
0: I was really vibing with that whole, that whole thing. I was like, I, she was like a dog with a bone and I really am like that too. Like once
1: you see something, you can't unsee it. And I was just like, like,
0: yeah, I was like entering her mind palace and I was like, get out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And like, uh, yeah, I mean, and I, I was also vibing with the, this is such a common thing you hear from people even that are kind of interested in Hegel. They're like, yeah, but obviously not the the teleology and the absolute and all that crazy, you know, that crazy stuff. I've got, I'm just more interested in like what he does with civil society or what he does with this one part of, of a certain book, right? It's like, no, there is no, first of all, just getting Hegel right, which I know isn't that important, but you can't do that. First of all, with, with, <laughs> with Hegel it makes absolutely no sense. And then like you can't separate the method from the system, uh, all of that stuff. But like, you're losing everything that's really pause like that's the most interesting and potentially the most theoretically and practically helpful in Hegel when you yeah, do that yeah
0: otherwise you're just like stuck with recognition and we are just like yeah we're just stuck with oh god i'm so yeah.
1: bored with recognizing <laughs> i hate yeah. recognize i don't want to recognize any more shit i'm done no i want i want speculate i want more speculation <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah so can we can i ask about this like okay so what's your like what's our best guess so we i feel like we've gotten through this episode and we've done a good job of like pointing out the problem um as well as we can but like so what's the what's the what's the solution like there's the and i can think of a couple of things instead of non-speculative like oh i'm so inhibited am i knowing we can, we can know. That is such a good the description. Of
1: <laughs> that's so good. That's the Kantian
2: no, paradigm. Oh, I can't, so you know, oh, I'm, just <laughs> <so finite>. oh, <laughs> I'm just so finite. Oh
0: my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And then yeah, the um, humiliation
3: of pure reason, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And Kant was such a fan of that. Yeah. he's like, stick your ass on that little Island, the tiny little Island in the sea. That's the only place you can go. <laughs> no adventures for you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're going to bring reason back the big dog. And then,
3: we're oh, going yeah. to do God. it
0: speculatively and so on. Um, we're going to think the absolute. So, like, let's discuss the absolute.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's – this is the follow-up. And this is where, like, even a lot of early or, like reviews of this book were like, okay. So if the absolute can't be thought, Hegel's work has no social import. And then, like, the opening of Chapter 7, the first several sentences of it, so it starts off by repeating that claim that we find at the end of chapter one. It's immediately followed up with, well, we can't totally think the absolute yet, yeah. but we're trying and failing in a different way than Fichte and Kant did. So this is where, this is where there's understandably a lot of, a lot of frustration with <laughs> uh, the book. And I mean, she goes on to say, you know, for example, she's like, yeah, when Hegel actually talks about like the absolute idea, or even just the absolute at the end of, I think it's the essence logic and the science of logic. She's like, yeah, it's pretty vague and abstract a lot of the time. (laughs) Like, it's not super helpful. (laughs) So, like, what are we doing, you know, what are we doing to, like, think the absolute? And we don't really get a definition of it except for at the end of that canon and organon section in chapter one. So this gets back to... On oh, the questions that you were bringing up about sort of like, what is that connection? Where is that mediation between these two levels? How are we supposed to respond to questions like that? She's going to at one point use, and she'll slip into the language of when Hegel says, and it's one of his, it is one of his gutsiest claims where he says, this is sort of like the everything that is rational is actual and vice versa. It's the one where everything that is true is a syllogism. And he just like says that and he's like, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? Uh, Socrates is a man. All men are mortal. Socrates is mortal. That's it. That's like the best that we can do. And this is one That's of those moments I where like,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. And this is like, this is like, yeah. Like uh, Francis Bacon's criticism of like syllogism. He's just like, you're just reshuffling the concepts that you already have. Mm-hmm. You just put them together in a new way to generate that conclusion And you kind of already knew that. You're just like unpacking from what you already (laughs) knew. It's a tautology. It's boring. Let's go do science out in the field. I'm sorry.
1: We're looking for synthetic judgments, not merely analytic ones.
3: Yeah. So like, yeah, then you do like Francis Bacon and you try to come up with like a new way to refrigerate poultry or something like that and die of pneumonia.
1: Yeah. We've all been there.
3: That's science. So this is where at the end of the first chapter, we sort of go through the problems of like we talked about theoretical uh, and practical reason and the split between them, and about how both of those sort of generate this sort of unknowable source. So, what is it that generates these conditions that allow us to claim things are true at any moment in history for the theoretical reason? Or, like, where do social values come from? So, like, what are our commitments? Where do our oughts come from? Mm-hmm. Kant is also not going to be super helpful on the practical side, insofar as, then this is Jillian Rose's read, if there's I know that Kantian is very contentious about this. Kant is just going to say it's a fact. It is a fact of freedom. Right. And that's it. That's, that's, that's the ground. This is
2: why he says, like, that we need to change how we understand what the problem, like, what Hegel's problem is with Kant. Uh, the issue isn't, you know, when Kant confines knowledge, right, to just, you, you know, when he, tra- when he makes a division between the thing in itself and appearances – it makes it sound like the problem here is that he's banning us from thinking the infinite, and all we can think about is the finite. Now, her what the her, amazing point that she draws out of Hegel is that no, 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 no. The problem is, is that it's stopping us from thinking about the finite stuff.
1: Right. Nice. If
2: we can, it's it's stopping us from understanding finite objects that we do have experience of and that we can know things about um, because we refuse to ask those questions that go beyond that, those limits and ask you know genetic questions, like where does that object, how does it come about? Why is it this way? And I think like that's the key to understanding for me at least, although I again, don't fully understand it, but the key starting point for me to understanding that speculative turn that she wants to see social theory make is to, is to understand that it is that we are not doing justice to the things that we have confined in the finite sphere of like Mm. what we're allowed to know and talk about because we've barred all the questions about their causal conditions, barred the questions about their relationship to the, to the, the kind of conditioning power, you know,
3: totally. And this is where, you know, barring that kind of access. And this is sort of, you know, the difference between as Hegel's going to talk about, like the bad infinite, Mm -hmm. the bad infinite and the good infinite and the bad infinite, the, the, the long and short of it is just like when Kant's like, I look up at, at the end of the second critique, he's like, I look up at the starry skies above and the moral law within and they're beautiful. And then, like, no one reads the follow-up, which is he's like, and they help me learn to hate the finite animal that I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, they just mortify me. Like, the
1: infinity of the universe, and I'm oh, a speck of dirt. Yeah. I love I'm this disgusting so funny, creature. This fucking <laughs> gross animal. I Not have, a like, a worm. fucking I have genitalia. It's miserable.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. God, Hilarious,
1: so dude. Weird. Philosophers are so crazy. They're complete lunatics. Absolutely. That's so And that's, that's Hegel's problem, which is why there's that
3: famous anecdote about him hanging out with Heine, I think. And they're just having a few drinks and Heine starts waxing romantic. He's, he's spitting. He's got bars and poetry about the stars and how nice a place they would be to live oh, after you song. die. And Hegel says, I rank a rash that explodes on someone's mm-hmm. body. Oh and flares god. up and has pustules more than I care about the beauty of the heavens.
1: Yeah, fuck that. <gasps> That's what it's a
3: response to. <laughs>
1: oh my god.
0: Yeah, who cares Wait, about did the they heavens? actually hang out? Are they contemporaries in that way, or is that made mm-hmm. up?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that actual story actually happened, but they were contemporaries. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, Heine says it did. And then Hegel has to respond to it in his philosophy of nature lectures. And he's like, people say this stuff about me. And he's like, and you know what? It's true. I love slime more than I love stars. Slime, bioluminescent (laughs) infusoria in the ocean. I love them more than stars. (laughs) Stars Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) So, but that's the bad infinite. As you said, it doesn't do justice to the finite. And so this is what the absolute is. Well,
2: just like descriptive sociology doesn't do justice to the sociological phenomena it has in view. Yeah.
3: Because then you have this totally transcendent beyonder that just keeps going forever and it gets boring after a certain point. That's the problem with space for Hegel in that sense. Just like <laughs> it gets
1: bigger and bigger and bigger and he's like, yeah, I who don't cares? care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care, man. I don't I know, it's, yeah. N plus one, whatever.
3: Yeah. So there's like that. And then on the other side of these, you know, these sweeping vistas of just like endless, you know, at a certain point monotony of like difference. You just have like what's given to you as a brute fact that you take for granted. That's why the absolute, it's an attempt to think the relationship between the finite and the infinite. And by infinite here, it's sort of in the sense of when the finite goes beyond itself and returns to itself. So this Mm. gets us back to, and that's a, you know, maybe not a super helpful way of putting it. Although I think that Hegel has, let's say some more difficult ways of putting it, like where he (laughs) does all that stuff in the logic where it's like from nothing, through nothing to nothing or something like that, when he's setting up the Finite, infinite stuff, which is just, thank you. What am I supposed to do with that? And that's, I take it, what part of the absolute is in the theoretical sense, and then in the practical register, it has to do with a very specific political philosophy between law and ethics. And thinking about overcoming the split between those two in modern society, which she mostly talks about in her other books, and then stuff that we didn't read today necessarily for this one from her reconstructions of Hegel's criticisms of like the political philosophies of Kant and Fichte. So those two things, which is, yeah, if we bar access and yeah. we do the thing, as you said, the, Oh, woe is me. My thinking is in- inhibited. I'm a disgusting little worm. I will never understand society. That kind of thing. If we do that, we can have no like knowledge of something as it develops.
2: Well, and we, and then and because of that, we're powerless, right? Like this is the line that she says. That I just, think is incredible. If the infinite is unknowable, we are powerless. For the concept of the infinite is our concept of ourselves and our possibilities. Mic drop.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Could we like, like actually like think just for a little bit then about that sort of political register, because she says some pretty wild stuff about what she's calling politics in the severe style, this thing that hegel is up to and she sort of sees a continuity between his earlier and later works but that they're like kind of articulated in different ways that they're trying to say something similar about uh, okay maybe i can ask it like this she suggests that and you know we've said this right in our hegel episode listeners will know we said that there's a kind of conservatism in hegel where it is a sort of like you know what what does it look like to overcome theoretical and practical reason? Uh, what does it look like to overcome the is and the ought? Like, good news. We already got it, baby, right? Looks like problem solved. And Rose thinks that this misses something really important, that this is, you know, common, a common reading of Hegel and an intelligible one, maybe due to his form of exposition. But she thinks that, like, he was constrained to express himself in this way that makes it sound conservative, but that the point isn't conservatism, that the point isn't to accept that the ought is already, or, you know, that the the, the the way things ought to be is the way things already are, that there's something else going on in how he's thinking specifically about ethical life and civil society. Uh, Could can, can can you speak to that sort of stuff a little bit?
3: Yeah, this is where, and I think this is interesting because she is going to be, I mean, just worlds more generous to Hegel, probably more than he deserves on this point, especially about like the Owl of Minerva stuff. Right. Um, but she does at one point in this, and I mean, in the opening to chapter two, she'll say, okay, yeah, the problem with Hegel is that, you know, there's this sort of like bad infinite ought where Kant says, the reason I know I'm free is because I can see that everything in the world that has happened so far was necessary, and I can still say, I hate that. It should be different. And that's like freedom or spontaneity in some sense. So that sort of freedom, which is also, and this is the problem with Kant and Fichte, is their freedom isn't really actual until they try to sneak it back in through practical reason, like reshaping the world. So instead of freedom coming from the world... It's just like slap down on it (laughs) and like to crush it. And that's part of the problem that she finds in both of their like moral philosophy. So like, yeah, she's going to, in the opening to chapter two, she's going to say, well, Hegel's solution to this dilemma was just to emphasize the presence of ethical life, not the task of achieving it, which is sort of a coded criticism of Hegel where he just overcorrects against this so hard that he's just like, yeah, look outside. That's, (laughs) that's ethical. Like we're achieving it right now. You're just missing it. And this is just for, for context in terms of like law and ethical life and the philosophy of right. Hegel's going to say that individual rights, especially in modern constitutional States are sort of parasitic on broader historical, social and cultural movements and those themselves are sort of based in what are a lot more informal ethical relationships that people have to each other at like different levels of group life. So that's sort of what ethical life is supposed to be and how it's supposed to help us recontextualize law. But yeah, that's the problem. Hegel just says like, look outside at some points We're, Hey, you, you know, you, what is, what are the speculative unities that he says? He's like the family, that's a speculative unity unity of differences. Unfortunately, that requires some pretty artificial structures (laughs) of law, like property law also to keep it together. So maybe let's not look there. And then he keeps looking for like more, like better forms of ethical life until he's like, what if in the modern state, the most sort of like cohesive social unit that we can think of is just the state itself. And that's sort of in its administrative aspect. But then that also fills, like you said, the undialectical resolution, uh, what I think earlier, to the philosophy of right, where he's just like, well, you got the state over here with a lot of like, hopefully someday, brilliant technocrats. <laughs> and they have, they've read all the Greeks and yeah. they've, they've taken my textbook courses they've and they mean su- yeah. <laughs> super well. And then you got civil society, which is just a bunch of people, you know, trying to kill each other. Right. like the civil animal kingdom of uh, particular interests. Yeah. And he just kind of like shrugs at that point. This is where Rose is going to be like, okay, going back to Hegel's early work, absolute ethical life, sort of overcoming this split between ethical life and law. She's going to be like, this actually shows up in Hegel's later work. You get the philosophy of right early uh, 1820s, I believe, or late 18, 1810s. And then you get through the twenties, his lectures on the philosophy of religion. There, there's a part where he talks about the three ages of humanity, and he seems to be referencing, as best I can tell, she doesn't mention this, the uh, apocalyptic medieval Christian thinker, Joachim of Fiore. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Now now we're talking. (laughs) And Hegel is going to say, this is after he's just said, like, basically the Prussian state is like the best that the world has been able to do up till this point. Good for us. You know, we could do a little, we we got some improvements that we could make here and there. We got some spot checks, you know, we missed some spots. He's like, overall though, this is, this is easy sailing, you know? Then in the uh, philosophy of religion lectures, he's going to be like, I look outside and I just see signs of the times. The apocalypse is coming. We live in the second realm where law is just imposed from above and particular interest dominates everyone. And I don't know when it's going to happen, but I hope that it will happen soon. And then just like ends one of his lectures like that. Yeah. That one seems (laughs) more accurate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But so in this sense, we get the two images of political Hegel, right? Like this is, we get the one that we usually think about, which is the philosophy of right. Mm -hmm. And in the philosophy of right, you know, you can construct like a series, which is that it's retrospective, like rational reconstruction of what has happened. And then like a defense of that in the theodicy mode which is right hegelian is the way that she'll refer to it and it's a defense even in his day of private property it's a community of law and it demands the sacrifice of the individual to these abstract edicts of the state so that it can maintain itself so that even individuals can even dream of freedom don't you know the hand that feeds you that sort of thing then you get the other which is just straight up apocalypse (laughs) we live in the second realm uh, please, God, send the lightning now, which is it's it's prospective or maybe even prophetic. It's supposed to be left Hegelian, which is that there is an element of ought or Zollin. It's where Rose is going to say, Hegel, all of his arguments militate for, if you look at his critiques of private property, the abolition of private property, he just doesn't mm-hmm. make it far enough. And then this is supposed to be like a community of love that is inaugurated here, which means Love is a speculative relationship par excellence. You give yourself over to it and you receive yourself back instead of being annihilated in love. But you receive yourself back as different or changed or transformed. And I think she puts that antithesis very well. I also don't think she thinks Hegel has a res- a response to like where we go from there. But he's posed that problem for himself. Mm. So, yeah. Sorry, I went on a little bit long. But- no, that's, oh, great. That's,
1: that's great. That's great. Well, I think that works. Uh, I'm down. I'm here for the the lightning bolt that allows us to enter the community of love, finally, where we can all be speculatively one with ourselves and differing. That sounds tight. No. As usual, just going to have to abolish private property. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that does it for us today. We'd like once again to thank uh, James Callahan for joining us. James, would you like to tell our audience where they can find you uh, online and about anything that you might have coming up? Uh sure. So on Twitter my handle is at Groomiday
3: James and I apologize for that. I've had so many Twitters and they all had crane in them that I had to use like the genus name for cranes. Uh, but if you look for James Crane, it should come up. <laughs> that is?
2: is that yeah. what that is?
1: Wait, seriously? Oh my god. Oh my god. Very taxonomical of you. Yeah. <laughs> Very unspeculative, yeah. frankly.
0: It is. It is taxonomical. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god.
3: This is where Hegel's like, even about taxonomy. He's like, here's the thing about taxonomy. It's not real. He's like, real taxonomy? That's how things maintain themselves against each other. So you should be classifying things according to how they kill, eat, and survive with their different organs. Not this random thumb that you found on this. this one th-. He's like, I don't Honestly, care. Honestly, facts. If no- yeah. Uh, it scans. Yeah. Scans. So, yeah. But yeah, if you search James Crane, that should come up. And hopefully soon in the future, I will be putting out more stuff. I do have a subsec. Uh, apologies in advance. I will be publishing some academic papers very soon, hopefully on critical theory. So cool. yeah, I hope to hear from you.
1: Yeah, well, we will link all of that stuff in the episode notes. Uh, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are JJ Rosenbaum, Sandeep, Germ, Argyle Bird, Philip Bell, Jip Lemons, Trent, Alexis, Jason Friedman, Megalomania, Nick Baker, Keith Rondinelli, Carolyn Ann Logren, Bennett Brown, Buffy Zena, Ishmael Tickley, Fred Holderlid, Brian Fairley, and Kent. Taylor. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Left of Philosophy merch, which you can also find through the website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks, James.
0: Bye. Thank you. Thanks for having me,
1: all